Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Peter Myers. Peter is a brilliant teacher of leadership communication. His actionable tips and tricks for speaking in public can help even the most unpolished presenter come off like a pro. Peter is an accomplished actor, an award-winning director, and a brilliant writer who's taught at the American Conservatory Theater, Stanford University, and the International Institute for Management Development. Peter taught me at least five extraordinarily effective tools for delivering polished communication over the course of our conversation. So check it out. Listen and learn. Here's Peter Myers. How do we take what's inside of us and bring it into the world in ways that are not only meaningful, but create experiences for people that inspire them, that make that bring out their best. I mean, what we're seeing worldwide are record lows in terms of engagement levels in organizations. I mean, the U.S. is is really at the top, and according to Gallup, 17% of people at work are actively engaged, which means that 83% of them are actively disengaged. I mean, you go to places like France and Japan, it's much, much worse. So we know that the old model of leadership and communication, the old model of running a meeting just isn't working. People are falling asleep. Mm-hmm. And of course, now they've got one or two gadgets hooked up um, that allow them to immediately disengage and start texting or playing a game or going on Facebook or whatever it is we do to sort of survive when we're bored out of our mind. Yeah. You know, at a time when, when digital communication is becoming more and more ubiquitous, we're asking the question, what is the role of the spoken word? Why do we still come together in organizations, in meetings, and in, in conversations? Because if it's just information, you know, you can just send the PDF. You can just send me a text. And so it now begs the question of, so if we're not just, you know, after the data, after the information, what is it that we really do? Now, how do we really reconnect and reinvigorate our relationships through the way that we communicate. Well, what is it that personally drew you towards uh, assisting in communication? Were you always comfortable in in communication? No, I was really uncomfortable. I I was, in high school, I was the weird kid that sat in the back of the room uh, who rarely raised his hand and rarely spoke. In fact, in my high school in New York, the way home was through the south wing, and, and that's where I lived, in that direction. But down that hall with the drama kids, that's where the theater department was. So I went through the north wing to avoid that hallway. Those kids were so out there, they were so expressive that it, it just terrified me. I got all the way to being a senior, and, and I realized I had just become so introverted and so shut down. I had to do something. So I asked my father if I could come and live with him. I I thought, I've just got to go and try something different. So I I, I left my mom's house and went to go live with my dad. And something shifted that year. I met met a woman, a girl at the time. I met Amy. And Amy was the, you know, in this new high school, I, I, I had this girlfriend named Amy, and she was the drama queen. She did all the musicals and all that. I was comfortable with her. Came springtime, and she said, listen, as seniors, you know, we all do 
we all do the drama at night. We all, all the seniors perform. I said, well, great, I'll come, and, I'll come and watch, no problem. She said, no, we, we, all, we all do something. I said, I, I, I'll come and watch. She said, you gotta do something. I said, no, no, I don't have to. She said, no, you, you, you gotta do something. She said, look, if you, if you love me, you'll do it. I said, oh God, well, what are you supposed to do? She said, just go find a monologue. I said, what's a monologue? I didn't even know what it was. She said, it's a monologue, it's like a speech. And I went to the library and I, I couldn't find anything. Um, but I went home and I wrote, I wrote a little play. I wrote a, like a one act play. And she and I did the play, and um, and it was amazing. Somehow, I found, I found my voice. I had overcome this great fear. And by the time I got to university, I realized I had crossed a bridge. And as I looked back, it was transformational for me. And I thought, if I could, if I could help others across that bridge, that would be, mm -hmm. that would be a worthwhile mm -hmm. endeavor. You have a, a, a great phrase in your book about the fear that people encounter in the public speaking realm. It's called the uh, amygdala hijack, if I pronounce that correctly. I was wondering if you could explain that. Yeah, it's, it's not m my phrase so much as Daniel Goleman's phrase, the guy who wrote Emotional Intelligence. But the amygdala is the uh, small and very old part of the brain that constantly searches the environment to scan for danger. And when the amygdala uh, looks out and sees 20 or 200 mammals staring at you in the dark. The old part of the brain remembers this for hundreds of thousands of years and knows that when there are a lot of mammals staring at you in the dark, it can only mean one thing. You're about to be lunch. And as it begins to send signals, alarms through your biological system, it begins to uh, redirect blood flow into the large muscle groups to prepare you to run or to fight. As it redirects that blood to the large muscle groups, it drains blood from key organs that aren't needed in a fight or flight response. And one of them is the cerebral cortex, which is the thinking part of the brain. So if you've ever stood in front of a group of people and felt stupid, it's because, well, you are. <laughs> your IQ has dropped through the floor. You're operating with the IQ of a, of a rhesus monkey in that moment. The same is true when, you're, when you get super angry uh, in a conversation. Yes. Uh, you go through an amygdala hijack. When, you're, when your emotions take over, your ability to reason is not just compromised, it's all but gone. You become deaf, dumb, and blind. Um, you're just responding from a survival place, and that is the amygdala. That's its job. It is, its job is not to think. Its job is to keep you alive. And when you feel threatened, it, it swings into action. So we are hardwired to fail in the public speaking realm. We're hardwired to fail when we feel threatened. The, the question is, how do we rewire our brain to reframe the event? Mm -hmm. And the... The essential thesis in the book is to reframe that event from I'm about to be lunch or I'm being judged to this is an opportunity to give a gift. Right, giving. So I read your book, uh, As We Speak, How to Make Your Point and Have It Stick. So yeah. one thing that I, uh, a line I found interesting, self-consciousness is nothing more than too much concentration on self. There's this concern about how I'm gonna look up on stage, do I sound stupid? 
am I going to be humiliated? And you seem to be uh, wanting to reframe it like, what can I do for you? Exactly. Exactly. You hit it, Sam. It's self-consciousness is, 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 is overly cons- being overly concerned with self. And so long as I'm concerned with how good I look and will I, will I come off smart, um, will people like me, it's going to put me into a spiral of fear because we're never smart enough, we're never good looking enough, we're never sexy enough, whatever it is. We'll generally overly focus on our, our deficiencies, our liabilities. And you never win that inner dialogue, you never win that debate. So how can I make a difference? How can I create clarity where there's confusion? How can I instill a sense of purpose? How can I use my ability to think and share an idea and give it away? How do I tap into that quality of generosity? Because here's the interesting thing about humans that I've discovered anyway. You never win the debate of whether I'm good enough. But given, given the opportunity to serve, to make a difference in somebody else's life, most of us will work much harder for somebody else than we will for ourselves. Mm-hmm. In fact, when given an opportunity with a purpose, we reach down and we pull this heroic effort. There are energies, there are stores of energy, of strength, of courage, of intelligence that are just waiting to be called upon. And we all have it. We all have that desire to make a difference. And if you tap into it, you come alive in ways that you didn't even know existed inside of you. You talk about in this space of winning over your audience that you essentially have about seven seconds where they decide, are they going to listen to you or not? Yeah. Well, depending on which research you look at, it's seven seconds or, or it's, uh, it's seven-tenths of a second. What happens is we immediately determine whether or not we're going to give somebody our attention and what degree of attention we're going to pay to this because we've got multiple... Uh, you know, there are, there are just so many distractions and things pulling at us. And the question that everybody's asking is, can, can, can you help me? Uh, can, is this going to serve my needs? Mm. It's not bad or evil. It's just the way we are. It, it, we're, moment to moment to moment, we're trying to figure out where to devote our attention. And the problem is that most people get out and what they do is, that whether it's a conversation or whether it's an email or whether it's a speech, most people start by talking about themselves. I'm really glad to be here, and I, I, what I want to talk to you guys about is something that I'm really passionate about, and I, uh, I just want to thank you, because this is a, such a great opportunity. I'm back here where I've always, I've, I've always loved this place, and I am just so <laughs> glad to see all of you guys. And I, 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 it, we suffer from this disease called iitis. Mm-hmm. And unless you're a movie star, the, the truth is people don't really care about you. They care about themselves, and they're asking, how can you help me in this moment? As a speaker, again, whether it's a conversation or a speech, as a speaker, you're in service of the listener. So this is something that has to be established within the first seven seconds? In the first seven seconds. So one of the things that I suggest is change the pronouns from I to you. Mm-hmm. You know, many of you have come here today because you're looking out at your future and you're asking yourself some big questions. 
Well, that's, that's about four seconds. But what it signals to the listener is, I'm gonna be talking about your favorite topic, which is you. And I think, and, and I've taken some time to sort of think about what I think is on your mind. And you pay a great respect to the listener in that situation. You, you've, you've taken some time to think about what are they concerned about? What are they hoping for? What are their aspirations? And how can I help them? Hmm. Along the way, you might tell them a little bit about yourself, but it's in service of how you can make a difference in their lives. Hmm. Mm -hmm. you, you bring up the, the idea of a clean open. You come out there and what, what would be an example of of an unclean open? Yeah. <laughs> well, one of them is I, I, I. I'm really glad and I'm really glad. And thank you, John, Steve. It's such an honor. It's great. Oh, before I start, a little bit of housekeeping. <laughs> if anybody needs to use the restroom, it's over there. And notice where the exit signs are, if anything goes on like that. And also, uh, is Charlie out in the audience? Charlie, we found your cell phone. And right, you, so we're done. I'm done. If I'm in that audience, I'm already checking emails. I'm going, okay. Uh, and, the, and the attention span of the listener isn't getting longer. Mm -hmm. It's getting shorter every day. Mm -hmm. And the two extremes of that are young people and senior executives. They're, they have the shortest attention for obvious reasons. So it's a, it's a heroic effort to hold someone's attention. You have to earn it mm -hmm. moment to moment. I mean, one of the biggest mistakes I think that we make is that we, we believe that since there are people out there and they're looking at us, they must be interested. And nothing could be further from the truth. I say this to teachers all the time. Just because there are people sitting in those seats doesn't mean they care about what you have to say. <laughs> Assume they don't care and figure out how to earn their attention and foster their, their curiosity, and you have half a chance of teaching something. Mm. You also caution against opening with a joke. Yeah, well, the old saying is always open with a joke. Uh -huh. And I say never open with a joke unless A, you know that you're funny, and B, that's a fresh joke that they haven't heard before. Because if you open with a joke and it's not funny, you're going to spend the next 45 minutes scratching your way back to some level of credibility. And B, if you open with a joke that they've heard before, not only are they concerned that the rest of this is going to be yesterday's day-old bread, but secondly, it, it, looks like, it looks like you really need our approval. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you're, you're sort of begging for our approval. Now, what I say to people is cultivate a sense of humor about yourself, about your topic. Try to find some levity here and there, but, and use jokes. If you know the joke is great and, and they haven't heard it before, sure. But be careful, make sure you've tested it. Uh, otherwise, just have a sense of humor. and You'll generally find lots of humor in a more spontaneous way. Yeah, yeah. Another part I really found interesting about this book, and I, I was wanted to ask you about, you bring up the point that decisions, because this is about influencing people's opinions, I assume, a lot of, a lot of times speaking, and decisions are actually not made on the left side of the brain where we process information and facts, analysis. It's more made on the right side of the brain where the home of emotions, metaphor, and humor. There's a lot of research, and, um, but it all seems to be pointing to the notion that what we really do is decide based on how we feel. And then we go up and develop a rationale to back it up. Mm -hmm. Now, it's 
not that binary. Like there is this left right. and right and one or the other. Um, but we know for sure that people make decisions based on how they feel as well as how they think. But all too often, we address the logical part of the brain. Uh, people mostly forget the facts, but they never forget how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to touch, move, inspire, if you want to influence somebody, you need to be addressing both, another way of thinking about it, instead of left and right, but you need to address the heart. You almost take a neurological approach towards, uh, com towards communication working. Exactly. Well, you know, because, the, because communication is an art, and it's, it's traditionally been, the, the consulting of communication has traditionally been people from uh, either linguists or, or people from the theater. We've tried, and I come from the theater. I mean, I, was in, I studied English literature, but I wouldn't call myself far from a linguist. My background really comes from understanding communication based on training actors. How do we move somebody from the arts? But I've been careful not to be uh, seduced just by the artistic side to it. So I've tried to gather as much science as I can. And in the past 25 years, there has been more, there have been more discoveries around how the brain works than ever before. I mean, every day we're finding out more and more and how language and psychology interact with each other, how language reveals the inner workings of a person is fascinating to me. Hmm. Tell me more about that. Well, I'm right here on my bookshelf here. I've got uh, James Pennebaker's uh, book, The Secret Life of Pronouns, What Our Words Say About Us. And P Pennebaker, for example, is a, a psychologist and a linguist. And one of the things that he's discovered or, or affirmed is that, for example, when people say I, when people say I, it generally reveals a lower sense of self-esteem when there is an excessive use of the word I versus you. Uh, of course, that's, you kind of look for the things that, that affirm what you already believe. But um, So somebody said, you should read Pennebaker's book. <laughs> but I'm just in the beginning of this, but it's fascinating how he can look at two or three sentences and based on the, the linking words, the um, not so much the nouns, but the, you know, the twos and the thes and the froms and the unders, all that stuff that he calls them stealth words. Through the combination and the use of those, we can tell a lot about a person's state of mind and a lot about, we can tell about their gender, mm -hmm. we can tell about their, uh, their confidence level. It's fascinating. I, I, I can't speak with any expertise, but I've just started it. Pennebaker's book is called The Secret Life of Pronouns. While we're at it, another great book I'm reading is Steven Pinker's book, The Sense of Style. Pinker is a Harvard uh, professor, and he's a linguist, and uh, his understanding of psychology is fascinating and how he brings it into language. Those are two great books that I'm reading right now. On the subject of the kind of the neurological working with what the brain has to offer, you made a comment about how often if you're trying to make points within a speech, don't make 12 points, make three. Well, we might remember three, 
We won't remember 12. Well, there's 18 things I want to point out to you. Forget about it. They'll end up with zero. Now, it doesn't mean to say dumb it down, but figure out how to subsume those points into some kind of category. Another way of thinking about it is if you send somebody out to the go grocery shopping and you say, listen, uh, we need some apples and we need some pears and we need some bananas and we also need some crackers and we need some bread and we need some pasta and uh, we also need some carrots and we need some cauliflower and some broccoli. There's a risk that they're not going to remember any of it. But if you say, look, we need some, some fruits and we need some vegetables and, and we need some carbs, although most people would tell you they don't need carbs anymore. <laughs> but, uh, and then um, and, and put it under those, they're more likely to remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you want to figure out how to categorize things. So, for example, let's take a look at the opportunity in front of us. Secondly, let's look at the challenges. And then thirdly, what we're going to do to overcome these and be mm-hmm. successful. Mm-hmm. Not only is it simple, but there's an elegance to that structure that seems like it makes sense. It's logical. And it puts, it does two things. One is it puts the brain at ease. It says there's nothing mysterious about this journey. But if you think about it, if I say, first we're going to look at the opportunity, and then we're going to look at the challenges, and then we're going to look at what we're going to do to overcome them, it's almost as if three empty envelopes get created yeah. in the brain that we're going to fill. The listener leans forward to go, okay, here we go. Once we get into four or seven, it just gets much, much harder, even for smart people. Yeah. You're going to have complexity, but it's going to be under those categories. Most of the things that I've discovered in my life were as clear as the nose of my face. They're right in front of us, but we muddy them up sometimes with our desire for complexity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I liked your stuff that you wrote in the book about vocal variety, yeah. about changing the, the volume, what, the volume, the pitch, and... Tempo. What does that do for, for the person who's listening to it in the audience? Well, it turns out that the meaning that we're conveying is only partially communicated through the words themselves. Much of it, and sometimes most of it, is communicated through tone. So if I say, um, w- you know, would you like another cup of coffee? It's fairly neutral. But if I say, w- would, would, you, would you like another cup of coffee? Or if I say, would you like another cup of coffee? Each of those are subtle shifts, and they convey a very different meaning to the listener. Um, would you like to go to the dance with me? Would you like to go to the dance with me? Would you like to go to the dance with me? Or would you like to go to the dance with me? <laughs> the emphasis on each word also changes. So first, changing the volume, the pitch, and the tempo add nuance. The style in which you say it changes the meaning. Secondly, in the absence of vocal variety, we make the listener work much harder. You think about the famous speech by Hamlet. If I say, to be or not to be, that is the question, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea sea of troubles and by opposing. And the the listener goes, I don't don't really, this is exactly, I don't don't get it. I don't like Shakespeare. I don't, because I'm not doing any of the work to make it easier for the listener. So the, the 
the vocal variety makes it much easier to get what I'm saying. If I say, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. So I'm, I'm actually living in the words, but I'm also taking the time to shape the sound, to shape the musicality of Shakespeare's ideas, of Hamlet's inner monologue. I'm doing the work so that it makes it easier for the listener to understand. Good speaking is like good manners. It takes care of the other person. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm thinking about this myself if I was going to vary volume. I'm wondering how I would do that in a, in a speech to, yeah. to people. Well, first of all, when, when you do it, if, if you're overly focused on, I think I'm going to change my volume right now, it, it, then you're in the wrong place. The, the, here's the good news, is that we already do this. This isn't something we have to learn. Mm. If you talk to anybody who is associating with what they're saying, which means they're connecting with it, they automatically change the volume, the tempo, and their pitch. There's wonderful variety in there. The problem comes is that when we get into formal situations, we tend to flatten out. There are crescendos, there are decrescendos, and then there are operative words. So a crescendo could be, you know, we, we've been through a difficult year, and I think we can all see that. And as we gather together as a team, and as we start to look out at where we're going as a team, one thing is for sure, we have got an outstanding opportunity in front of us if we're ready to take it. Yes, I saw that, that wave. Yeah, and it doesn't want to come across as too technique -y. And there are decrescendos, you know? We've been through a really tough year, but I think as we look around and we look at this team, we can all stand arm to arm and know that the culture that we created as a team is still here. And if we continue to work and, um, and do our best, I have no doubt that we're going to do fine. But it's going to mean working together. Notice that both of them sort of bring it to a climax, except one is down, one is up. Yeah. And the other is the operative word. So in any sentence or phrase, there are certain words that get a little bit more volume or get emphasized. And by punching that word, you know, to be or not to be, giving that word a little bit more volume helps create a kind of a circumflex in the thinking. Mm. Where does the idea begin to take a turn? I also have a question about pitch. So pitch primarily conveys emotion. Mm. So when you think about the notes, there are low notes and there are high notes. And the higher pitch tends to connote joy, happiness, uh, delight, surprise. Empathy. Empathy, yeah. Empathy. If you see somebody who's in, in, in stress or difficulty, you wouldn't go, hey, Charlie, you look like you're having a difficult time. What's up? You'd say, <laughs> hey, Charlie, what's happening? What, you, you, look, you look upset. What's going on? Right? Uh, if you, <laughs> that's what we do naturally. Um, 
And the, the lower pitches uh, connotes authority. Yeah, generally, the lower, the lower tones connote, uh, yeah, strength, authority, power, seriousness. Um, so you wouldn't say, um, all right, we, we've got a really tough assignment in front of us, and I hope everybody does a great job. I'm absolutely certain we're all going to do well. Go out there, guys. Uh, you would say, you know, and I'm absolutely certain we're going to do a good job. So go out there, guys, and, and, and do your best. Uh, that doesn't mean that only men can connote authority. It's not how low you go. It's where you go relative to where you naturally are. So if my voice is naturally placed here, and I say I'm absolutely certain that we can do it, I've dropped down one or two notes, and that signals to the listener that sense of authority. Mm. So the, the lighter notes, those the yellows and the pinks and the blues, delight, empathy, happiness, joy, sometimes fear as well, the lower notes, the burgundies, the, the dark blues, the chocolates, warmth and uh, strength and authority. The only bad choice around pitch is no choice. When we go, all right, everybody, I'll be talking to you for the next half hour about some of the things that we're going to be doing. I'm not going to change my pitch at all. It's all going to be about the same. Because then we have listen. monotony. Yeah, you have monotony. And it, we, we can't stay with that. It's also unnatural. That's not how human beings talk. But when we go in a high-pressured situation, we tend to flatten out. The fear flattens us out. So we have to kind of remember to use our natural gift, to use the notes. How do you practice that? Well, you, you don't practice while you're in a high-stakes situation with somebody going, well, I think I'll, I'll change my pitch right here. <laughs> not a good idea. Your focus wants to be on the other person. But if you really want to work on, you know, your voice is the, your voice is the vehicle by which your ideas are made visible to the world. And if you want to develop your voice, the best way to do it is simply to read out loud. Pick up a book. I mean, I have a, another book here on the shelf is Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. I've spent my whole life developing my voice, but I still sort of go to the gym almost every day and lift weights with my voice. I'll read poetry out loud and try to play the notes um, to play with the tempo, to play with the volume, to see what I can do with my voice. I'll read poetry to my wife. I'll read Pablo Neruda's love poems to my wife, and it's, uh, yeah, she loves it. <laughs> uh, read to your kids. Read to other people. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful gift. So you work on the technique. It's like, you know, I used to teach tennis. You work on your down-the-line forehand in the clinic. Yeah. So that in the match, yeah. it comes to you. You don't even have to think about it. It's there. So you work on it off the court, off, off the match, so that when you're in the match, it's there for you. And you also had a tip in your book about trailing an audio book. Yeah. Well, I learned this as a skier. Um, I found that if, you fa if, if I followed a really good skier, you know, as you know, my fir the first part of my career was as a tennis and ski instructor. So I, that's where I learned to teach, was teaching sports. And I noticed that that tennis players just automatically get better when they play with a better player. And skiers, auto, it's, it's amazing. You can get 50% better just following a really great skier. Just get in their tracks, keep your eyes on them, and the mirror neurons pick up what they do, and you just get better. That's amazing. Well, the same is true with your voice. So if you, if you want to accelerate your development, you get an audio book, not read by the author, all respect to authors, but 
uh, read by read by a professional actor, somebody that you like. But it wants to be fiction. You want to. It's much better if it's fiction. Uh, I think Stephen Fry does um, the Harry Potter books, and, and and that's a good one. But um, you put an audio book in, and you simply trail. You you are two or three words behind them, and do what they do with their voice. And it doesn't matter if they have an English accent or or this or that. You won't sound like them, but you'll pick up decades of vocal training and the vestiges of that will stay with you. I mean, 10 minutes in the car as you're driving to work. Uh, you can do it with anybody, but you want to pick somebody whose voice you really admire. You, you mentioned, the, I, I say this because it's the most concrete thing. You mentioned people, some people have problems with shaking hands and you, you give a tip for what to do with your hands. Yeah, most of us are in an elevated state. You know, Jerry Lewis said, if you're not nervous before you go out and perform, you're either not a professional or you're a liar. Um, if you talk to any athlete, they'll tell you that the butterflies come right before, the, right before they get on the, on the field. The metaphor I, I always like to say is, if, if you've got butterflies, good, that's great. You're alive. It's a signal that you're ready. It's as if the butterflies have come out of their cocoons and what they need is oxygen. You need to breathe into that and let it go. Who was it? Fritz Perls. We're here at Esalen. Fritz Perls said, anxiety is nothing more than excitement without oxygen. you got to breathe into it. You want to know that that shaking and that, that excitement is natural. Elevated heart rate, natural. All there. And listen, if you're out there and your hands are shaking, there are a couple of things to be careful of. Number one, don't hold a piece of paper. If you're holding a piece of paper, whatever shake is going on, and there's always a certain amount of shake, that piece of paper is going to be flapping like a sail in the wind. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've got to hold the paper, make sure that it's backed, cardboard backing. Mm. Um, you don't want to hide your hands and stick them in your pockets or anything like that. But if you, you know, if you really need something, hold a clicker, hold a marker, put a prop in your hand that gives your hands something. Mm. Uh, to sort of like a secure base mm -hmm. that you can connect with. But put those hands to use. If you start to put some energy into them and gesture and energize them, the shaking will generally go down quite a bit. Okay, okay. Yeah, but th the main thing is don't, don't hold something out there that's gonna exaggerate the shake. Right, and don't hide them behind your back. Yeah, otherwise you look like a soldier. Okay, uh-huh. <laughs> and what about shaking legs, if your legs are just gyrating? Generally, we can't see shaking legs. Uh, we, th you know, it feels like everybody can see all this. They can't. They generally can't. And the, the same is true there. Uh, use the energy. There's a ton of energy going into them. Start to move. Move and get still. Move and get mm -hmm. still. Uh, but we, I, I've yet to see somebody up there where we can see their shaking legs. Okay. It doesn't, doesn't happen. I mean, you can see their hands shaking if they're holding that paper. Here's a big problem that I have is uh, forgetting my, what my lines or, or my, my outline, and then I panic. And then it's that amygdala hijack. It's like blank. Yeah. And then I, because I, I, I fear that the audience sees my vulnerability, and then they'll, whatever I've got, I've done to bring them on my team they might be distancing themselves. Yeah. You know, you, everybody's seen these crazy studies that say, you know, when people are asked what their greatest fear is, it turns out that number two is death. Number one is public speaking, which of course means most people would rather die than make a speech. I think the fear is not of public speaking, the fear is I'm going to forget yeah. what I'm gonna say, I'm, you know, I'm gonna be standing up there uh, fumbling. So there are 
Two or three things to keep in mind. First, create a structure. Don't try to memorize a speech. Bad idea. I, I, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've never seen anybody memorize a speech and do a good job. Memorize your points. You know, to use an American sports metaphor, it's like being a baseball player. You hit the ball, and then you know you're going to hit first base, second base, third base. You don't look at your steps. You just know you're going to hit that base. So my first point is, all right, let's talk about the opportunities in front of us. And you may have a structure there. If you need to, write it down. Put it on an index card. Put it on a pad. It doesn't mean you have to read it out loud, but you can use that as a prompt. I've seen really great speakers hold a stack of five by seven index cards and glance down to get the point. Mm. You're not expected to memorize the whole thing. Just get your points there. Secondly, change your beliefs. Most people forget what they're going to say about every 30 seconds in life. We lose track all the time. Mm. And it's actually quite exciting to watch somebody stop for a moment and reflect on where they want to go. What is, where was I? And if you don't panic and you don't suffer, the audience won't suffer or panic with you. Take a moment. Um, and yeah, and then ref, ref, find your thought again, just as I did there. Okay. Uh, it, 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 we have a guy on our team named Dan Klein on the Stand and Deliver team, and Dan is a professional improviser, which which translates to this guy gets paid to make stuff up every day. He just goes out and makes stuff up. By the way, he teaches creativity and improvisation and spontaneity at Stanford was voted Teacher of the Year a few years ago. But I said to Dan, I said, what's, what's your belief about those moments when you're up there and you forget what you're going to say, which I imagine happens all the time. He goes, Peter, you're absolutely right. It happens all the time. And he gets this sort of elfin grin as I ask him. He goes, in those, in those moments when I, when I forget what I'm about to say or I don't know what I'm about to say, I know something wonderful is about to happen. Of course, if you're a professional improviser, you would have to have that belief in order to survive. But most of us have this belief that when I figure out what I'm going to say, everybody's going to know that I'm an imposter, I'll be revealed, and we, and we just collapse. If you do freeze up there, there are a couple of things you can do. Number one, you have to, um, what's happened is it's like a hard drive that's frozen, and you have to restart. You have to restart. Uh, and you can't restart by thinking your way out of it because the hard drive is frozen. Yeah. So what you can do is change what you're doing with your body. Mm. You must move. You mm. can't stay there frozen. You have to actually move. And as you move, you have to breathe. Because what's happened is your, your brain is only, not only your brain is frozen, but you've forgotten to breathe. You're, you're holding your breath. You gotta physically move, go get a glass of water, uh, Breathe, uh, go back, do, do something. Second thing you can do is repeat what you just said. So if I repeat what I just said, I'll refine my way through the speech. Just yeah. repeat it. Yeah. And the third thing is um, say something silly. Say, you know, I, I had the thought, I knew what I was going to say, I had it this morning, but it's escaped my mind. Give me a moment. Go back and refer to your notes. And right. usually the audience will breathe a sigh of relief and they'll go, God, that's happened to me before. And they'll marvel at how you recover. Yeah. 
You can find out more about me or the work that we're doing through the Stand and Deliver group. We're at standanddelivergroup.com. And of course, there's my book, which is As We Speak, As We Speak, published by Simon & Schuster, written by myself, Peter Myers, and Sean Nix. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. 